Hello, credit union executives. Welcome to See You on the Show, where we give you up-to-date information on how you can reduce risk, keep key talent, and take a strategic approach to your personal financial wellness. Hosted by me, Doug English, a certified financial planner and former credit union insider with ACT Advisors. Back with me to continue our conversation on mergers and acquisitions is Jeff Cardone. Jeff is a partner at Luce Gorman, and in this episode, we focus on the acquirer in an M&A transaction. We talk about what to consider before you pursue a merger, how you might consider using subordinated debt, and what documents you need to have in order before you get into acquisition. Hi, Jeff. So tell us from a credit union standpoint, what would cause a credit union to want to look to uh, merge or acquire other uh, entities and what would cause one to not? Well, first of all, on the uh, what would cause a credit union, I mean, just kind of take a step back. If you look at the asset size of credit unions, going back to like the early 1980s, the average size of a credit union was about roughly 30 million in assets. Fast forward to today, that number's increased to roughly 300 million in assets. So credit unions are growing, scale's important. I would say that's probably the biggest why in terms of being an acquirer, because you can sort of enhance or grow more quickly vis-a-vis an acquisition than trying to do things organically. You can get into different lines of business, sort of reimagine the credit union's business model, expand, feel the membership. I mean, those are sort of the why. Why would a credit want to grow? Certainly having more scale, they can invest in technology, attract members, and so on and so forth. You know, in terms of the credit unions that I would caution against an acquisition, really the primary two hurdles would be one size. Do you have the size and the infrastructure to successfully execute on a deal and successfully integrate another institution into your organization? And two, from a regulatory standpoint, do you have any safety and soundness issues, because that's certainly something that wouldn't have to be addressed before undertaking any type of transaction. The credit unions that sort of fall into that bucket, probably a pause is warranted in terms of exploring a strategic transaction from what we've seen. Okay. So you said uh, size and infrastructure. So is there a uh, any kind of a ratio or anything between the scale of an acquisition partner and the smaller one that you know of, or is it related to your asset makeup? Well, I think it depends. I mean, certainly if you're a credit union and you're looking for another credit union, there's a seismic disparity between the two parties is less important because the credit union, the acquirer, is not paying anything from the quote unquote selling credit. Conversely to that, because you know we've been involved in a substantial number of credit unions looking to acquire banks, here in that situation, credit unions have to actually pay for the bank. So certainly they got to have the capital and scale to execute on that. So generally what we typically see for that, I mean, there's no real rule of thumb, but generally the bank asset size relative to the credit union is roughly in that 10 to 15, 20% range from what we've seen. Excellent. Excellent. So in one of our other uh, podcasts, we uh, interviewed a CEO that had been involved in a lot of transactions on both uh, credit unions buying credit unions and credit union buying banks. So that ratio is one that we did not capture before. So did you say uh, 10 to 20%? Correct. Yes. I would say really the bottom line is what's going to drive that, that ratio is going to be the credit union's sort of net worth and capital to execute on that. Because 
The one for credit union mergers, the benefit to that is the, the acquiring credit union doesn't have to pay anything. The downside to exploring credit union mergers is finding a really attractive candidate because a real healthy credit union, what's the real incentive for that credit union to join with your organization? You know, how are you going to incentivize that credit union? Why would they want to merge? Because a lot of times what's happening, it's a credit union that may have FOM runoff or may have some safety and soundness issues. So it's not necessarily, even if it doesn't rise to the level of like a supervisory merger, it may not necessarily be a real attractive merger from an, from an acquired credit union standpoint. Conversely, that when you're buying a bank, while yes, you have to pay for it, at the end of the day, price is going to sort of drive the attractiveness of the acquirer more so than even social issues. Not saying social issues aren't important. So that kind of leads to, okay, when the asset disparity with having to pay, you're really going to have to look at the credit union's net worth and do they have the capital? What are they going to look like on a pro forma capital basis following an acquisition of a bank? Because remember, when you buy a bank, you're buying out the shareholders, you're buying out the equity of the institution. So that equity is going to go away, which is going to sort of dilute your, the net credit, the acquiring credit union's net worth on day one. Now you hope over time, the accretiveness of the transaction, the earnings you're picking up, your, the ability to enter into two markets, for example, enhance commercial lending, CRE, CNI, et cetera, that would sort of offset that initial dilution in net worth. And that's the real attractiveness for credit unions in terms of looking at banks or, or acquiring banks. Yeah, what, what we heard in our other podcast on M&A was that uh, the, the bank transaction, as you said, is all about price. It's a business transaction. It's just come up with the cash to pay for the institution and the stockholders uh, are happy. But the credit union merging in another credit union is a much more connection, natural fit, interconnected field of membership kind of a transaction where there's a lot more human element to it and maybe not as much economic element. Would you agree? 100%. Yes. I don't want to downplay the importance of that on the banking side as well. But certainly on the credit union side, I mean, the social issues are paramount. If you're an acquiring credit union and you want to attract a healthy, very viable selling credit union, you know, what are you going to offer them? For example, ensuring that their members are treated the same as the acquiring credit unions. I'm working on a transaction right now where a selling credit union is what's great importance to them is they have a lot of relationships with schools, universities. They do a lot of grants and scholarships and so on and so forth. And so we've spent a lot of time negotiating as part of the definitive merger agreement, real covenants and promises of the acquiring credit union that they're going to preserve that for foreseeable future. So, you know, things of that sort, the culture piece is, I wouldn't say more important. It's more of an emphasis in credit union transactions than, than bank transactions, because again, you're not paying it. Because even for banks, look, they may not love the culture. They may say, look, we don't love partnering up with a credit union, but your, your price is so much better than what, what's out there. I mean, that's ultimately going to be the deciding factor from what we've seen. Do you have any feeling for trends in the transaction area? Are credit unions mostly buying credit unions? Is it more credit unions merging in other credit unions versus credit unions merging in banks? Let's put it this way. I would say it's still credit union. Credit union is more common. But certainly credit union acquiring bank is certainly picking up steam. I and mean, we were involved in the first credit union acquisition of a stock bank. This was back in 2012. So there was only one at that time. Fast forward, like pre-COVID, that was up to 20. We've been involved in a substantial number of these deals in 2021. So that's certainly picking up steam. Because again, what's happening too is, number one, with the way the market is, these selling banks, particularly smaller, closely held banks, they're looking for cash. 
and a liquidity event rather than another acquiring institution's currency vis-a-vis a stock acquisition or merger. And so credit union is quite attractive because they have the scale, they have the capital, and no longer is that the path of least resistance, selling to a credit union or a credit union acquiring a bank because these deals have gotten done. There's a regulatory framework from getting done both the NCUA and also with the bank regulators as well. So I think that's going to lead to more deals with credit union bank going forward. That is perfect tee up for the next question. You, the credit union leadership, have determined that you're going to be interested in looking to acquire either banks or merge in credit unions. What do you need to do from uh, getting your ducks in a row? You've determined asset-wise you're big enough. You've got the infrastructure. You've got the capability. What's your next step? I would say, number one, if you are particularly looking for banks, the most important thing from a safety and soundness perspective is going to be your capital, your net worth. And so to the extent, if you're overly capitalized, that's great. If you're, you know, hovering around that seven, eight percent range, you should very much be exploring secondary capital or subordinated debt, which if you're low income designated credit union, you can do that right away. If you're not and your assets are greater than 500 million, you can start exploring the sub debt markets starting in uh, 2022. And the one thing to keep in mind with sub debt and secondary capital, which banks are doing this hand over fist. And low-income designated credit unions have been doing this since it was in place since the 90s, is on the credit union side, you need pre-approval from the NCUA before you can issue it. So it's about a five, six-month process. So I always advise boards of credit unions is you really want to maximize your tools in the tool chest. So even if you don't have a tremendous desire to do sub-debt or secondary capital, at the very least, get pre-approved by the NCUA and they allow you a period of time thereafter to actually go ahead and issue the secondary capital or decide not to do it. And the current rules, it's a year. Starting in one one it's going to be two years. So that way there, you avoid what we call just-in-time capital. So if you find a very attractive bank and you're looking at your capital ratios, you can say, okay, like we can do this deal because we can go out and access the, the capital markets to do it. Or at the very least, we do the deal and then subsequent to the deal, we replenish sort of that lost net worth, maybe get us back to that eight, nine, 10%, whatever the comfort level is. I would say the capital, number one, number two, if credit union has any regulatory issues, any MRAs, MRIAs from the NCUA or state regulators, really addressing that is important as well. Because certainly once you sign up a deal, whether it's another credit union or a bank, you're going to have to get regulatory approval. And then thirdly is just making sure you have the proper team in place to execute on the Do we have to hire do we have to beef up our risk management function or personnel, you know, our HR function? I mean, because there's a lot of pieces to a deal beyond purely like pricing, particularly on the bank side. So I think that's going to be important too. And then lastly, start thinking about from a cultural fit, thinking about, okay, what areas we want to expand and grow? Who are the potential banks that are out there or credit unions? I also would say too, I strongly recommend for credit unions working with investment bankers or financial advisors who can find you deals or who you, that you're on the list. Because a lot of times, particularly on the bank side, if a bank's going to put themselves up for sale, they'll market themselves to acquirers. And for, for an acquiring credit union, you want to make sure you're on that list if you can be. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you may move forward, but at least at the very least, you'd have an option to look at it, assess the potential transaction and make a bid if it makes sense. So I think those are kind of the things to be thinking about 
as an acquirer in terms of growth and expansion. Interesting. This idea of credit unions leveraging themselves through subordinated debt is, is a new one to me. Talk to us a, a bit more about a, who is doing that now. I think I heard you say in 2022 that it really becomes possible. To take a step back, sub-debt, if you think about sub-debt, it's sort of a fancy word, but it's all it really is is a borrowing. Credit union is borrowing money from investors and the terms of the borrowing is structured in a way so that it's accorded favorable regulatory capital treatment. So for right now, low-income designated credit unions can issue subordinated debt, or as the NCOA calls it, secondary capital. Because the regulatory capital rules for larger credit unions is going to change in 1-122, what the NCOA did was they opened the sub-debt market beyond low-income designated credit unions and expanded it to, they call them complex credit unions. These are credit unions with assets of $500 million or greater. And so by opening that, is this would enable or allow credit unions to sort of leverage, use debt to sort of enhance or grow their regulatory capital. Now, as I, to reiterate what I said before, and banks have been doing this hand over fist. I mean, this is the most prevalent capital raising tool for community banks over the last three, four years has been subordinated debt. But the difference on the, from banks versus credit unions is banks, you don't need pre-approval from the regulators. For credit unions, however, you have to get the pre-approval from the NCUA. So that's going to lengthen the process. So that's why to reiterate, when we're talking about capital, get that pre-approval because that way there, you can then move quickly because that takes a five, six month process down to like a three, four week process because then you can just go access the markets, you close. And by the way, the other thing too is you always get the question, well, who's going to buy or want sub-debt of a credit union? Primary investor is going to be other credit unions because they have excess liquidity. It's not a bad investment on their balance sheet. So, I mean, you can certainly expand beyond that, but the primary investors is going to be credit unions. These deals get done rather quickly. But yeah, I mean, it was sort of a game changer with the NCUA, sort of broadening the pool of credit unions who could access those markets. Very interesting idea from my standpoint, thinking about it from an interest rate lock-in. How long are the terms of the sub-debt interest rates? Yeah, to get favorable regulatory capital treatment, the instrument has to be in place for at least five years. It can't be callable for at least five years. So generally, the way these are structured, it's their 10-year terms. Your interest rate is fixed for five years. And then after five years, it kind of converts to a variable rate. But I'll just tell you right now, because interest rates are so low, I mean, it's really, really cheap capital. I mean, we've done deals in the 3%, 4% range. And, you know, the nice thing is when, when a credit union decides that they want to do it, they can kind of set the market parameters. Like, we'll do it, but we're not going to pay interest above a certain amount. And then they work with a, like a placement agent or an investment banker to go out and sell it. And they kind of build their book and they can determine, okay, is the market there for the interest rate we're looking for? And generally speaking, I think that would be yes, because it's just these deals have just been happening and it's been a very favorable market for sub debt generally. Yeah, that makes sense because it's a low risk loan with, with a, a nice little interest rate compared to what you can get in the private market right now. But the ability to fix the rate is only in the five year range generally. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the market. Those are sort of the general terms is the 5% and then it, then it converts to flow. Because think about it, if you're an investor, do you want to be locked in at 3% for 15 years? And a lot of these terms get sort of institutionalized. I know on the bank side, you generally don't see fixed rates beyond five. It's, it's generally standard of five and then it converts to a floating rate thereafter or the general terms. But you can't call or, or redeem the debt for at least five years. So you're sort of locked in once you do it. 
But as I said, the benefit to it is that it's, if you're low income designated, it's purely accretive to your net worth. If you're not low income designated, it's accretive to the new regulatory capital ratios on a risk-based basis. So it's, it's a very attractive tool. We have about three or four of these going on right now. And, and I think once one, 122 hits, I think we, we were going to see that number increase substantially with our client base. Yeah, I would think it would be something primarily used by the larger institutions. Yeah, although you'd be surprised. The few that we're working with now are small. I mean, they just want to get their net worth ratio up. There's no safety and soundness issues, but you know they're hovering around that seven, eight percent. They want to grow, and they feel like the market's right and rates are low. And let's explore and do it. If you decide to proceed uh, and get NCUA pre-approval for a sub debt, how much should you think about? Yeah, that's a great question, and the answer to that is really a balance. So number one, you want to go in with an amount because once you get pre-approved, you could always issue less. You cannot issue. So for example, we're working with a credit union that they were thinking about doing two to three million and we had recommended them what they're doing is let's just go in for three and you could always issue the two. So you're balancing that piece of it with and with the versus what the NCUA is going to assess when you go in for the pre-approval is can your institution service the debt? So you can't go in with too high of a number. So that's kind of a balance. So you're going to be assessing, can we service that debt? Do our earnings support us taking on this debt instrument that we're going to be issuing to our investors? That's really kind of the balance when you're trying to assess the amount. You're also going to look at your debt to equity ratios as well. I know for, on the banking side, generally, if you get above one-to-one, that can raise safety and soundness concerns from the bank regulators. So we've generally been counseling credit unions in terms of the amount. You roughly want to be about no more than like 25, 30% of your net worth. I think it's sort of a good marker as well from a safety and soundness perspective. I love a good ratio, Jeff. 25 to 30% of your net worth is a number to think about as far as how much you might get uh, pre-approval for it. Yeah, if you want to go higher, that's fine. But you're as part of the pre-approval process, you're going to have a business plan. What do you intend to use? What are they going to be the use of proceeds? And, and so if you can support going higher, you can certainly do it. That's not a, well, if you go higher than that, the NCUA is going to say no. You just have to be able to support what it is you're doing. Going back to what I said earlier, it's a real balance. On one hand, you don't want to handcuff yourself with going in with too low an amount, but you also want to have credibility and not have your number or the amount you're requesting be too high. We've kind of laid out what position the credit union wants to be in, right? You want to have no safety and soundness issues. You want to have some size and scale. You want to have access to capital. What do you need to, to look at as far as any of your documents as a credit union before you go into uh, a potential merger or acquisition? Yeah. On the buy side, maybe we're looking at your field of membership. Is it worth going in and trying to expand depending on the market you want to enter into? As part of a transaction documents, we always recommend you don't have to do this. The way the NCUA structures the mergers is you don't technically need a real a definitive agreement, merger agreement. But we think that's important to have that for a variety of reasons. Just again, the covenants of the parties are reflected in the, the agreement. Certainly, you know, it was part of the due diligence process. You'd have an a selling credit union make representations about its business. And it's sort of like conformatory due diligence because obviously you're going to be looking at it, but you but it's great to have them confirm in writing. If you're on the bank side, you're going to have a definitive agreement. I mean, that's, that's going to happen. Credit union mergers, we've done deals where you haven't had it. We always try to push to have them, not to over-lawyer it. It's just a much better process in terms of deal execution than not having it. 
I'd say those are the big two. And then as you start getting into the process contracts, really on the credit union side, if, if you're going to keep the all the executives or senior management teams, you know, you have to, there's going to generally need to be consistency and comp plans and arrangements. For example, if a selling credit union CEO has an employment agreement, but the acquirer CEO does not, well, does do we want to put employment agreements for everybody so they're all treated the same? 457F plans, collateral assignment, those types of arrangements too. So that is a bit, whether it's a credit union deal or a bank deal, that is certainly a big part of a transaction, those documents as well. Excellent. Jeff, this has been great information. I appreciate your time and expertise greatly. Uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? The theme of any discussion I have, if you are a credit union and you want to be an acquirer, just be prepared, have an open mind, and consider all your options because you never know what opportunities are out there that will be presented to you. Excellent. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. That's all the insider credit union knowledge we have for this episode. Are you enjoying the conversation? Be sure to subscribe and share your thoughts with other credit union leaders by leaving us a review. See you next time on See You on the Show. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual security. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Indexes are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly.